I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, history friends. My name is Zach Twomley and you're about to listen to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails. This is first and foremost a history podcast, but it is also a listener-supported podcast supported by fans of When Diplomacy Fails, just like you. What's the best way to support? Well, simply tell people about it. If you're feeling sociable, though, find us on Twitter, at WDF Podcast. Find us on Facebook in the Facebook page or Facebook group. Email me directly, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com and say hello. Or if you'd like to support us financially, Patreon is the best way to do it. By supporting us on Patreon, you get an hour of extra content every month. Currently, we're looking at the Suez Crisis, which occurred in 1956. And it is literally the perfect story for our podcast formula to tackle, which is, of course, why I decided to do it. If you're interested in what the Suez Crisis is all about, make sure you check out that episode, which came out a few episodes before this, It's about an hour and ten minutes long, I believe. And it'll run through each of the episodes that we've released on the Suez Crisis so far. For $5 a month, the same price as half of Netflix, you too can chow down on all the history content your little history-loving heart desires. If you're feeling even more ambitious than that, you'd like to play something special called the Delegation Game, then send $6 a month my way, and you can craft, or at least help to craft, an alternative Paris Peace Conference Treaty of Versailles, or what's looking like now the Treaty of London, because a coup happened in France, it was all very messy and everyone's in London now. It's a crazy story. If you want to keep up with the story, make sure and check out those Delegation Game episodes that come out every week. They are, of course, free to listen to. But if you'd like to send a character into that crazy story, 
and if you'd like to have a role in shaping how it ends up or how it transpires, etc., etc., $6 a month, patreon.com is the way to do it. Other than that, guys, this is a shorter episode than normal, perhaps, but then again, at the same time, you probably don't notice because this is an episode coming out every flaming day for the last several days and for more to come. I do apologize. You can blame the peacemakers. Just one more thing we can blame them for. But on this day, 100 years ago, they were feeling quite pleased with themselves, and we're about to see why. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 59. Today is the 28th of April, 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. It had been an incredibly eventful month, the longest since the peace conference began. April 1919 had hosted the problems of Japan, Italy and France all in equal measure, and the resolution of each of these problems had required a considerable appetite for compromise. The French had desired the Rhineland, and at the greatest extent of their ambitions, they'd wanted to detach the Rhine completely from Germany. They settled for a system of arranged occupation, whereby Allied forces would withdraw from the Rhineland in five-year intervals, completed in 1935. The Tsar, that industrial chunk of the Rhineland territory, would be ruled by a League of Nations commission and would be entitled to vote in 1935 to stay under this jurisdiction, to join France or to rejoin Germany. This solution, while wholly unsatisfying for Marshal Foch, who had campaigned for the height of French ambition in the region, was accepted in the end by Clemenceau, likely because he realised these are the best terms he could get. The Italians had been less accepting, but had also been given less to accept overall. While the Italian Foreign Minister, Sidney Sonino, still stalked the halls of Paris, Vittorio Orlando had long since returned to Rome, and had attempted in desperation to leverage Italy's importance in order to get what he wanted. Mass disaffection, accompanied by no shortage of anti-Wilsonian demonstrations, had accompanied the American President's attempt to speak to the Italian people, as he had done in the past. The Italian people, veering increasingly to the nationalist right, were gripped by the fear that the Allies would not fulfil Italian war aims, and that the Treaty of London in particular, but her designs on Fiume above all, would not be respected. Italy's difficulty was Japan's opportunity, because with the exit of Vittorio Orlando, it became clear that the entire conference could fold if another of the Big Five walked out. The Japanese had been excluded from the Council of Four, and they continued to loudly but politely protest at the American president's unwillingness to heed their demands, particularly on the Shantung Peninsula. Disputes over the jurisdiction of the Japanese and their actual legal rights to the strategically vital strip of land and its port of Tsingtao dominated Japanese representations to the Council of Four in the final days of April. But by the 28th of April, House was writing in his diary 
how he had been approached by Lloyd George about the issue of Japan. House wrote, Lloyd George took me aside and asked if I would not get the president in a more amenable frame of mind. He thought the president was unfair to Japan, and so does Balfour, the foreign secretary, and indeed so do I. The concessions the Germans obtained from China in the first instance, and which the Japanese have taken over as part of their spoils of war, is bad enough, but it is no worse than the doubtful transactions that have gone on among the Allies themselves, and indeed that are going on now. House wasn't the only one losing faith in Wilson's approach. The President's press secretary also wrote in his journal, around the same moment, that So far, the peace conference has failed magnificently. It has not brought the peace and new world order for which all humanity cries out. People everywhere are becoming impatient, almost belligerent, at the continuation of discussions that seem to lead nowhere. The question that is posing itself, especially in France, is that most tragic of all questions. Have we really won the war? The statesmen are united in promises of results. They have made similar promises before, always unfulfilled and perhaps worse, unfulfilled without explanation. At the moment, the obstacles before an agreement are stupendous. Yet, failure would bring about a period of chaos and disruption unparalleled in history. It would take several days for Wilson to come around to the Japanese, and not until the first week of May would Japan essentially receive the guarantees it had been asking for. Once this recognition of Japanese rights to Chinese territory had been given to the absolute fury of the other Americans on Wilson's delegation, which included his Secretary of State Robert Lansing, Henry White and Tasker Howard Bliss, it had the dual effect of essentially silencing the Japanese delegates for the remainder of the conference and, of course, positively poisoning relations between the Allies and the Chinese. The Chinese, like the Italians, well, they were the ally that was sacrificed in the name of the greater good, that greater good being allied unity and productivity. On the afternoon of the 28th of April 1919, this unity was put to good use as the covenant of the League of Nations was finalised and accepted. The 28th of April 1919 was an eventful day indeed. It contained a very brief meeting of the Council of Four, but the main event was unquestionably the plenary session which gathered all of the attendees of the conference together to note their approval of the Covenant of the League of Nations. Since the Covenant had been first presented and accepted in mid-February, the League of Nations Committee had been adjusting and unpacking its implications, structures and powers, with note taken of the reservations communicated by Henry Cabot Lodge in early March. Almost every evening, Woodrow Wilson had sat in on the meetings of the League of Nations Committee, and while it had the final say on what that institution looked like, it was still important, for the sake of appearances if nothing else, to present this finished product before all those who had come to Paris. House recorded the scene in his diary. The plenary session unanimously adopted the draft of the Covenant for the League of Nations, which our committee wrote. It also passed the resolution which I instigated and had David Miller write and which the President offered. This resolution, as adopted, is a part of the record. It not only names the nations which are to compose the Council of Nine, but also names the nations which are to compose the Committee on Organisation. In other words, the Organisation Committee is now practically in my hands, as I had hoped it would be. Clemenceau put the steamroller promptly to work as soon as those who wanted to make speeches to go in the process verbal had finished. 
Everything was passed almost before the conference could catch its breath. The difficulty for those major actors, indeed, was to finish their work and establish their main points before any of the minor powers, eager for some interaction with the VIPs of the conference, interjected. Inevitably, one could not stop all of them from acting to get their voices heard. This was, after all, one of the only chances for the minor powers to make themselves heard on a public forum while before their peers. Just imagine that in the initial planning stage of the conference, it had been imagined that the plenary session method was going to be the default version of hammering out the piece. One imagines that if this process had been adopted, the Treaty of Versailles would have taken six years rather than six months to hammer out. House had noted in the past that even the Council of Ten had been too unwieldy, and that while it may have been impolitique to reduce its attendees further into the Council of Four and Council of Foreign Ministers in late March, such an approach was the best way to get things done. House was not ignorant as to the scenes taking place in front of him, though. From his diary one can gain some of the most memorable and biting records, and they tended to be of Clemenceau, who plainly loathed the open-ended nature of these packed plenary conferences. House continued, And this reminds me of some of the biting sayings of Clemenceau. Someone remarked to him not long ago, Stephen Pichon said so. Clemenceau quickly asked, Pichon, Pichon, who is Pichon? The reply came, Why, Pichon is your minister for foreign affairs. So he is, said Clemenceau. I had forgotten it. Another time he spoke to Louis Lucien Klotz, his minister of finance, as being the only Jew I ever knew who knew nothing of finance. Again, he told someone, Colonel House is practical, I can understand him, but when I talk with President Wilson, it feels as though I were talking to Jesus Christ. And again, he said, The Almighty gave us ten commandments, but Wilson has given us fourteen. When Léon Bourgeois was rambling along this afternoon about his amendments, it was worthwhile being bored to watch Clemenceau's expression of contempt as he looked at his worthy confrere. Lloyd George remarked to Clemenceau, How did Bourgeois ever become Prime Minister of France? To which Clemenceau replied, During a period when I was unmaking cabinets, the material ran out and they took Bourgeois. When Bourgeois began his argument, which the President and I had heard innumerable times in our League of Nations meetings, I wrote on a slip to the President, Lest old acquaintances be forgot. The President replied, I wish I could forget both the speech and the man. Again, as if we needed reminding how House felt about the whole process, he reiterated his perspective on the interminable exercise of letting all the delegates speak whenever they wanted to, writing, These plenary conference sessions last all afternoon, but they might as well be finished within 15 minutes after we start, provided we could get the speechmakers to submit their speeches in writing for insertion in the process verbal without having to listen to them. The actual work is done in a few minutes. It is the tiresome oratory which takes the time. So much for open covenants openly arrived at. Rather than any spectre of openness or transparency, the minor powers would have been within their rights to feel frustrated at the fact that the Big Five had closeted themselves away in their private councils over the last few months, and the numbers of those in attendance at them shrank with each month that passed. Yet it may surprise us to learn that in spite of his unguarded impatience at times, 
Wilson was genuine in his desire to have the League be seen as a radical new step in world politics, and he did wish to see all the nations of the world included in its operations and protections. Not only that, but as the historian Lloyd Ambrosius wrote, the League contained within its covenant religious and spiritual symbolism which spoke to Wilson's personal faith. Ambrosius wrote, Wilson viewed the League from the perspective of his Christian faith. He saw it as a redeeming influence. His emphasis on moral force expressed this orientation. Moreover, Wilson had chosen the word covenant as the name for the New League's founding document, rather than charter as later used for the United Nations or some other word. For devout Presbyterians like himself, the word covenant communicated an important religious meaning. The President also determined that the New League's headquarters will be located in Geneva, Switzerland, which had been John Calvin's home. Wilson's Calvinism was a modern, liberal version. He identified with the social gospel movement, which advocated progressive reform at home and abroad. Someone who viewed the League of Nations Covenant with a good deal less romanticism or spirituality was our favourite man on the ground, Harold Nicholson. When he had last written about the League's Covenant in mid-February, I noted the pathetic fallacy present in his writing when he took the time to write the simple sentence pours with rain on that 14th of February when the Covenant was first hammered out. Incredibly enough, I'm not sure if he did this on purpose, as if to echo his own grim expectations over what the League would become, or maybe he was just a stickler for details for the weather, Nicholson provides us with a short entry on the evening of the 28th of April, 1919, writing merely that, Plenary session of the conference. They adopt the covenant of the League. Pours with rain. Was this a deliberate act of symbolism, or just a coincidence that it poured with rain on both occasions when the covenant of the doomed League was passed? I'm not sure. The jury is out, but as it did in mid-February when I first encountered this idea, this whole thing still fascinates me. But what was the Covenant of the League of Nations which the plenary session of the 28th of April 1919 had passed? In short, it was a document containing 26 articles, of which Article 10 was probably the most controversial in the United States because it committed all contracting parties to respect and preserve as against external aggression the territorial integrity and existing political independence of all members of the League. In case of any such aggression, or in case of any threat or danger of such aggression, the Council shall advise upon the means by which this obligation shall be fulfilled. The functions of the League would be carried out by a permanent Secretariat and a Council, consisting of nine members, of which the Allies were to play a prominent role. An assembly containing all the nations would meet where necessary, largely for the purpose of debate, and to foster dialogue in an open and controlled manner, where such opportunities had never existed before, don't forget. We take it for granted now that the United Nations exists, and in the United Nations General Assembly, representatives from different nations can talk to each other on the open floor. But this had never happened before, and the idea that it could and would be happening soon must have been very, very exciting. And of course, as we know, because it's a common feature of modern diplomacy today, it was something of a trailblazing idea. It was a bold plan to maintain world peace and improve world relations, and the Covenant opened with a similarly high-minded manifesto. 
The high contracting parties, in order to promote international cooperation and to achieve international peace and security by the acceptance of obligations not to resort to war, by the prescription of open, just and honourable relations between nations, by the firm establishment of the understanding of international law as the actual rule of conduct among governments, and by the maintenance of justice and a scrupulous respect for all treaty obligations and the dealings of organised peoples with one another, we agree to this covenant of the League of Nations. The creation of this covenant and the finalising of its 26 articles meant that it was ready to be baked into the Treaty of Versailles, and consequently it meant that Woodrow Wilson had achieved arguably his major goal to reimagine international relations and pave the way forward to a new world order. Ideally, it would also mean that the President would be a great deal freer in the evenings from now on, since he would no longer be needed to make regular contributions to the construction process of the Covenant. Whatever way you spin it, we have to conclude that this day, the 28th of April 1919, was a highly significant moment in the history of the world. It was the moment when, for the first time ever, the idea of collective security was enshrined in the international system. The problem, of course, was that many were not ready for such a big step. To some, the League was a godsend. To others, it was an ominous infringement on their state's rights. But at the same time, there was by no means an absence of positivity surrounding its creation. Political commentators and statesmen alike could very easily get excited about the potential of the League of Nations, and one such individual, Gilbert Hitchcock, writing for the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science in July 1919, had the following to say. The League of Nations is not a government. It has no sovereign powers. It is a contract between sovereign powers in which they agree to do and not to do certain things under given circumstances. They promise each other that, when they enter into it, that if a dispute arises between any members, they will submit that dispute to arbitration, or if they do not submit it to arbitration, they will submit it to an inquiry of the nine nations, composing the Executive Council, and during the period of arbitration, or during the period of inquiry, covering six months, they solemnly agree that they will not go to war, and they further agree they will not go to war for at least three months after that time. So, no matter what the arbitration is, or what the result of the inquiry is, the world is assured of a cooling-off period of nine months before there could be any possibility of war. That cooling-off period will prevent nine-tenths of the wars of the world. In spite of these ambitious, but no doubt well-intentioned, predictions for the League, it was plain from an early stage that the three major allies all viewed the institution differently and came to the table with different ideas about how it would serve them. Wilson is perhaps the exception to this, since what he wanted was essentially the credit for having devised and pushed the League into the spotlight, where it could be respected and used for the force of good. The President didn't, in other words, intend to use the League for the aggrandizement of American interests across the world. In this, it has to be said that he was the odd man out among the big three. Both Lloyd George and George Clemenceau had their own designs on the Middle East, Africa and Asia in some cases, and they intended to use the League of Nations mandates system as a means of achieving the expansion of their imperial interests, under the guise of protection and opportunities for the natives, of course. This naked ploy was especially marked in the French case for Syria, and for Britain in Mesopotamia and the Middle East generally. As the historian Ernst B. Haas explains, the mandates system did not solve Anglo-French antagonism in the realm of colonial competition, 
but it did present another opportunity which London was eager to embrace. Haas wrote, Since the mandates were promptly interpreted by each government as fully consistent with its particular and mutually hostile policy motivations, it cannot be argued that the Anglo-French compromise was facilitated by the mandate. Thus, not only was the question of oil settled independently of the mandate issue, but after 1920, the United Kingdom could no longer interfere with French policy in Syria, though this policy was almost diametrically opposed to that of London. If the mandate system did not serve as an inter-imperialist compromise, it functioned as a most useful principle for reconciling the clashing aspirations of various units of the British Empire. British statesmen sorely needed a formula which would meet the demands for outright annexation put forward by Australia, New Zealand and South Africa, and the opposing demand that the empire refrain from further expansion. Mandates were an important element of the League of Nations' features, but they did not represent a get-into-imperialism-free card for the British or the French, and this is demonstrated by the very real and palpable tensions which the British and Americans endured over the colonial settlements, as well as the naval questions which had been plaguing their relations ever since Edward House had first landed in France in late October 1918. Yet, it was more than that. While eager to oversee the creation of a body tasked with preserving world peace, Lloyd George was sensitive indeed to the notion that the League would operate in the name of all of its members in the event of war, and that collective security, the quintessential bedrock of the modern United Nations, should not be allowed to undermine the integrity of the British Empire. Lloyd George was also not above sacrificing the League entirely if he believed it undermined British interests in the naval sphere. When the new American naval program of December 1918 threatened British naval policies, Lloyd George froze negotiations on the League question completely until the Americans promised certain modifications. Proponents of the League at its most basic idea were not hard to find in Britain, but there was understandable reluctance to tie British soldiers and taxpayers to a body that would be responsible for military or diplomatic intervention at the drop of a hat. Remember, these British figures were living with the previous year's experiences in mind. Where Wilson could assure his British counterparts that the League would make war less likely, Lloyd George and his party found this difficult to believe, since in their experience, war was a natural but regrettable part of the way international relations worked. As a Liberal, it has to be said that Lloyd George loathed war, but he also prided himself on being a political realist, and he did not believe it was practical to tie all nations and Britain, to an institution which would intervene to prevent all wars. Wilson's assertion that the very commitment of the major nations of the world to intervene would guard against the need to actually intervene at all, because it would send such a strong message to potential disruptors of the peace, well, this wasn't a message that Lloyd George was buying. As Lloyd George was wont to do, though, he had placed on the League of Nations Committee a figure in Lord Cecil who he rarely agreed with when it came to interventionism as a policy. One wonders why Lloyd George allowed Cecil to work with Wilson so closely if the Prime Minister disagreed on the central issue with both of them. Indeed, Cecil found that he saw eye to eye with the American President, and Wilson was led to believe that Cecil spoke for Britain, precisely because Cecil had been placed in that position. It is difficult to discern why the Prime Minister allowed Cecil to run away with the baton here. Perhaps he admired his enthusiasm and appreciated the value of his good relationship with Wilson. 
Either way, Lloyd George may also have been sufficiently informed about the unfolding terms of the league that his worst fears could have been assuaged. When the Covenant was revealed in its entirety on the 28th of April, Lloyd George seemed willing to tolerate it in the belief that its provisions were sufficiently ambiguous to allow for definition and evolution along realistic lines and in the hope that league responsibilities would be shared fully by the Americans. When this hope faded in the autumn of 1919, there occurred an urgent debate within government circles as to the wisdom of proceeding with the League of Nations at all. In addition, when it became apparent that Washington would not succeed in passing the Covenant, and Britain and France would be left to pick up the tab which Wilson and Lord Cecil had run up, Lloyd George worked desperately for a solution, even sending the nearly blind Sir Edward Grey, that is, the former Foreign Secretary who led Britain into the First World War, Sir Edward Grey, over to the United States in a bid to lobby American opinion. As he worked to that end, of saving American participation in the League, which now appeared to have lost several teeth, the narrative of a great betrayal began to enter into the lexicon of the British Foreign Office. The Americans, so it was said, had hung the British Empire out to dry. The historian George W. Egerton captures this mood, writing, Certainly, no bonds of personal friendship were forged between Lloyd George and Wilson as a result of the peacemaking experience. Even the League of Nations project, despite the harmony between Wilson and Cecil, served as a major irritant in broader Anglo-American relations, as Lloyd George repeatedly threatened withdrawal of Britain's support for the League until Wilson proved more accommodating to the Dominion's colonial objectives and Britain's naval interests. Furthermore, Lloyd George and his closest advisers found themselves opposed to the type of League drafted by Cecil and Wilson in the League of Nations Commission, tolerating it only in the anticipation that a conservative interpretation could be placed upon the Covenant and that the serious new obligations involved in League membership would be fully shared by America. It's a very interesting story, but also a forgotten one, how the British and French felt once it became apparent that Woodrow Wilson would not be able to fulfil his dream after all. It's always been a fascinating story for me, precisely because it is so forgotten, but also, you have to know, we don't have time to get into it here. Let's take our story back a bit though, because on this day a hundred years ago, it couldn't be known that the American president would fail to get the covenant passed, nor could it be guaranteed that any of the disputes which had racked the Anglo-American or Franco-American relationship in the past would not be open to resolution. Furthermore, with the continuation of the alliance between the three powers looking likely, Clemenceau was content to approve of the League for now, but to rely above all on that wartime agreement to bolster French security. Having avoided the League of Nations committee meetings, Clemenceau had evidently been content to let Léon Bourgeois, whom he loathed as we saw, to take over. Bourgeois had taken to the task with the same ideological flair and gusto as had Wilson and Cecil, and these three men effectively built the final draft of the League Covenant together. The final verdict is provided by George Egerton in another of his articles examining the League and the role of Lloyd George in its creation. Egerton concluded... The League of Nations Covenant embodied a great personal triumph for Wilson and Cecil, and few today would contest the historical achievement associated with the founding of the world's first great international organisation. In many respects, however, their triumph marked a paper victory. It was a victory, moreover, that had several major adverse consequences. It led directly to the non-participation of the United States 
and the consequent near-abortion of the whole League project. Lodge and the American Senate would have been quite prepared to participate in the type of League favoured by the British government. The triumph of the collective security approach in 1919 led also to the alienation of the British policy-making elite from the League of Nations. When the Americans deserted the cause late in 1919, only the strength of the League of Nations movement, the vestigial liberalism of Lloyd George and the sanctity of the Treaty of Versailles kept the British government on course to see the League through to its official birth in January 1920. It was destined to be a rocky birth and an even more unstable life cycle, but it is difficult to understate the significance of the moment which crowned the establishment a century ago today of perhaps the most infamous international institution in history. Renowned forever after for its terminal failure in preventing a repeat of the Great War, the League of Nations, as we have by now learned, was built upon the hopes and dreams of several well-meaning men who were, it must be said, many years ahead of their time. They were ready for the League of Nations, for a body which would preserve peace, protect the vulnerable and foster meaningful dialogue and conflict resolution. The world, as these men would come to realise with resignation and despair, was not ready yet. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.